So you can't read these verses without realizing that the land is an important part of this deal, this covenant, this promise that God made with the people of Israel. It's a little piece of land, not much bigger than the state of Delaware, but it's on the news every day and not by accident. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of Romans chapter 9, and today we touch on a subject that always raises a lot of interest. In a message that asks, are we predestined to hell? Dr. Brogy looks at the issue of predestination or personal election. Let's join him as he begins reading from verse 1 of chapter 9. Take the word of God with you this morning, Romans chapter 9, Romans 9. We began Romans 9 a few weeks ago, and we've only gotten as far as the first five verses. And whether you know it or not, Romans 9 is one of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible. We are exploring one of the most volatile, explosive topics known to believers in the church. And I suppose in one word, as I gave you, chapter 9 could be summarized with the word sovereignty. How God sovereignly chose the nation of Israel out of all the nations of the world in which to bring his Messiah. Now, in the next few weeks, we're going to read some things that are shocking to some and misunderstood by others. For instance, next week, we'll come to the phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But if you understand it correctly, it's really very reassuring and encouraging. But today, we're going to crack the door in this subject called predestination. Now, I'm using the term in a popular way today. We saw that there is technically a biblical difference between predestination and election. Predestination refers to that process by which, as saved people, God is committed to forming us and conforming us into the image of Christ. Election is God's choosing of us. And we saw in Romans, the eighth chapter, that every Christian believes in the doctrine of election. You cannot be a biblicist and deny election because the Bible says before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ. It's not an issue of how does God elect, excuse me, does God elect, but how God elects. And this is a very important distinction. And we will examine that further here in the ninth chapter. Now you can see the title of the message is predestined to hell with a question mark after it. Some would put an exclamation point after it. Does God really predestine people to hell? That's the subject of this morning's text. Now, to get a running start, I want to begin reading in verse 1. So look down at your Bibles, follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you need to get one. You'll get much more out of any sermon I preach. Paul begins, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, 
and Sarah shall have a son. Now, if you want to create a controversy in an evangelical Bible-believing church, you speak on one of three topics, speaking in tongues, divorce, or predestination. But we cannot say, well, I don't want to speak on that because it will create controversy. And out of those three topics, without a doubt, the one that creates more turmoil than any is the one that we're exploring today. More heat has been generated on the subject of predestination and election, I suppose, than any other single topic in Scripture. Romans 9 is definitely a challenging chapter. Some consider it the hardest chapter in the book of Romans. But unfortunately, predestination and election is often misunderstood and misapplied by both the Christian and the non-Christian alike. And so as your pastor this morning, I want you to pay close attention to what the Scripture says. And if um, you discover that some belief that you have held on to is in conformity to Scripture, then hold on to it tighter. But if it's not consistent with the Scripture, then let it go and let your thinking be conformed to God's Word. As a brand new Christian, I was taught some things about predestination and election that seemed logical to me, and so I adopted them. But as I began to grow in Christ, I discovered that some of those things were not entirely accurate. Now, let me set the context of where we are. In one word, the book of Romans concerns salvation. In the first eight chapters, the doctrinal section, he dealt with the doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. He unveiled for us our need for salvation. He showed how God procured salvation, and then he applies it to us in terms of our need to respond. And of course, whenever you think of the topic of salvation, you have to think of the Hebrew people because Jesus told the Samaritan woman that salvation is from the Jews. And so when you come into chapters 9 through 11, you come into the national section. And one word, this subject concerns Israel. And it's not a parenthesis in the argument of Romans, as I mentioned some people take it to be. It's a continuation of his argument. Is God really a promise-keeping God? Can his promises be trusted? And of course, the eighth chapter ends with the truth that God loves us with an everlasting love, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Well, with that said, why is it that the Jews rejected their Messiah? Does that mean God has rejected Israel? Or do the promises he make, are they going to be kept? And so we saw in chapter 9, the subject concerns Israel's election. Chapter 11 deals with their rejection. Why is it that they are in unbelief? Why is it that they did not embrace Jesus? And we briefly discussed that in the Old Testament, there are two pictures of Christ. One is he comes as a sovereign ruler to overrule the nations of the world. And the other picture is that he comes as a suffering servant. And if you've been under the foot of the Gentiles for centuries and then under the oppression of Rome, you would indeed want a savior who would be a sovereign, not a sovereign who would simply be a savior. And so the people had become self-righteous in Jesus' day like many people in our day. And so they didn't like the picture that Jesus offered. And to his own people, Jesus said, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you do. Why? Because they saw their need. They saw they had a problem. So 9 deals with election. 10 tells us why they rejected. And chapter 11 deals with their future restoration. So here's the problem in essence. How could the nation of Israel, with all of their blessings, with all of their privileges, possibly have missed Messiah? 
And since the gospel had been promised long beforehand to the Jewish people, as the opening two verses of the epistle to the Romans states, why didn't they embrace it? And if the good news is God's saving power to the Jew first and then to the Greek, why are they in apostasy? Now, I want to tell you that a lot of pastors would not even look at the text that we're looking at today because it is so immediate. They say, well, you'll lose people. But as I tell people who come into my office, some who are brand new Christians, some who are children in their 10s and 11s and 12s, and some who are adults in their 50s and 60s, I'll tell them that every Sunday, if a pastor is faithful, he has to teach some Christians their numbers. He's teaching others how to add and subtract, others how to multiply and divide, and some even calculus and everything in between. And so don't worry if you don't understand everything I'm going to say, because it is a very meaty text of Scripture. But there's coming a time, if you are a new Christian, I promise you will come back to this section and you'll probably want to listen to this tape. This question that we're exploring this week and in the next several weeks is the single most question I am asked on in the Bible line. Questions come in from all over the country, from many nations of the world every single week. And this is the number one question. Does God choose some people to go to heaven and choose other people to go to hell? Two simple truths I want you to see if you're taking notes. First, God's promise to Israel has not failed. His promise to Israel has not failed. Notice verse 6. Paul states emphatically, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, why would he say that? Because if you were here last time in verses 4 and 5, he just unpacked Israel's identity and history, and he went through seven wonderful blessings and privileges that God had uniquely given them as a people. So the Apostle Paul simply mentions this to say, in spite of all these blessings, it does not mean that God has failed and his word has failed. Christ came to them. Messiah came just as God promised through the Jewish people. Jesus belonged to them. The problem was they did not belong to Jesus. It is not as though the word of God has failed. God's promises to the Jews has not failed. God in choosing Israel, he didn't make a mistake. How do we know? He tells us in the rest of verse 6. Notice the very first word, for, you could write because over it. Because, he says, they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. And so he's giving us the reason why we can know the word of God has not failed. You see, the failure was not due to God's word. The failure was due to Israel's unbelief. And he makes it very clear here that they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. It's a play on words in the original and even in our English Bibles. He's making a distinction between spiritual Israel and physical Israel. The first word Israel, he's talking about true believers within the nation of Israel. The second word, Israel, you could write over it if you wanted the word Jacob. You remember Jacob? The patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And on one occasion, God renamed Jacob. God said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Yitzrael, Israel. No longer conniver, but God's prince. And of course, it is uh, this man who has 12 sons who form the 12 nations of the people of Israel to this very day. So Paul is making a distinction between a racial Jew and a spiritual Jew, or a new covenant theology between one who is nominally a Jew and one who is a born-again Jew. Now, he doesn't have Gentiles. Gentiles, if that's a term that's new to you, is generally used in the New Testament to either refer to a pagan or someone who is not Jewish. He's not speaking of Gentiles in this chapter of Scripture. Now, we are called 
sons of Abraham. If you've put your faith in him, you can be a child of Abraham in that respect. But he's dealing in this section with the Jewish people. And so he's simply saying, you can paraphrase verse 6, not everyone is a true Jew because he was born into a Jewish family. Not everyone is a true Israelite just because he descended from this man named Israel. There have always been two Israels in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There was spiritual Israel and there was unbelieving Israel. And we looked at an example of that in the rebellion of Korah last time where all these Jewish people were literally sucked directly into hell. Today, there's born-again Jews, Jews for Jesus, sometimes we say, completed Jews, Messianic Jews, and there are unbelieving Jews. But the proof that there is no failure with the Word of God is that the promises were not made simply on the basis of physical descent. That's what he's saying there. And not all Israel who descended from Israel. So you can have this big circle and you could call that the chosen nation, the chosen people. And within that circle, you could put another circle. And you could call that true Israel or spiritual Israel, those who have believed. So very simply, the statement, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, simply means that a person can be a physical, ethnic descendant of Israel, of Jacob, of Abraham, and not part of true Israel. And on that basis, you can know the word of God has not failed. Jesus encountered this same problem. Do you remember in John chapter 8? He came to his own, John will write in the prologue, but his own received him not. He came to his Jewish people, but they didn't embrace him. And on one occasion, they said, we are Abraham's offspring. In other words, we are right with God because we are a descendant of Abraham. We're part of the chosen nation. That makes us right with God. And Jesus simply says, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. And by the way, it is no different today. People reason along the same lines. We are right with God because we are Christians. We wouldn't say we've been circumcised, but we've been baptized. We wouldn't say we are descendants of Abraham, but we would say we've been raised in a Christian nation or a Christian family, and that makes us right with God. And Jesus would simply say, but you must be born again, and you will know them by their fruits. And so this is important. We can rag on unbelieving Israel today without taking a hard look at ourselves. Do I have the evidences of genuine conversion? Jesus said in the end, there will be a great multitude of people who will identify with Christianity, but he will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. Do I have the morality of a changed life as an, of a new creature in Jesus Christ? Do I, for instance, have a love for the brethren? By this we know we've passed out of death into life. We love God's people. Am I an overcomer of the world or is the world overcoming me? See, this is what Paul is reminding us here in verse 6. Because Gentiles would read this as well, and there's great application for them. There are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So the seven blessings that God promised in verses 4 and 5 to distinguish them from all of the nations of the world has not failed. Because the failure was not with God, the failure was, was with unbelieving Israel. So that's the first point, very simple, you got it? God's promise to Israel has not failed. Second, if you're taking notes, God's promise to Isaac did not damn Ishmael. God's promise to Isaac did not damn Ishmael. Again, we read, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But, notice the Old Testament quotation is seen in caps, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And so to illustrate his point that just to be physically related to Abraham 
or to Jacob did not automatically make you right with God, Paul then proceeds with two further illustrations. Two illustrations of men who were physically descended from Abraham, but that did not necessarily guarantee that they shared in the exact same spiritual blessings that the nation had. And so this week, we're going to look at God's choosing of Isaac over Ishmael, and then next time, Lord willing, we'll look at God's choosing of Jacob over Esau. Now, some have taken these two illustrations to basically say this. Based on God's dealing with Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, then when God looks across the mass of humanity, he chooses some people to go to heaven, and then he chooses some people to go to hell. He predestines some for glory, and he predestines others for judgment. Some have been chosen to be saved. Some have been chosen to be lost. Some have been chosen to inherit salvation. Some have been chosen for eternal damnation. And they will argue from this passage that it's not up to any man to decide whether or not he will go to heaven or hell. God makes that choice before the foundation of the world. And sometimes this is called the doctrine of predestination or Calvinism. And of course, there's been a great resurgence of Calvinism in this country in the last 20 years. Now, there are two ends on the spectrum, and I do believe there's a biblical balance that people often miss. On one end of the spectrum, there are those people who say, well, man has a free will, and man can choose for or against God all by himself without any help from God at all. That's typically called Arminianism. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people who would say, well, man is dead spiritually and has no capability in himself. And the Bible teaches that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. We often call that the doctrine of total depravity. But they conclude from that, since man is dead in sin and man cannot choose, then God will choose for him. That God will select out of that mass of humanity certain people to salvation and others to damnation. And they would say the only reason that you said yes to Jesus is because in eternity past, God said yes to you. And so they teach that what appears to be your choice is really no choice at all. The choice that you made to receive Christ was simply in response of God's choice of you. And again, I believe both ends of the spectrum are in error. And we will see in the next several weeks that there are some some things that predispose someone to that kind of theology, some things that are not entirely accurate. Man is dead. God must take the initiative. The question is, does God initiate with all? And I believe he does. That when Jesus said, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He meant precisely that, that God truly loves people and wants people to be saved. Not all will be saved, but it won't be because God didn't initiate with them. So I don't believe Arminianism is correct or Calvinism. I'm a Calminian, as I've told you before. But one of the reasons people come to some of the false conclusions that they do concerning Romans 9 is because they do not interpret it in light of the Old Testament text. If you look down at Romans 9, you'll see a lot of capital letters, all caps. And in the New American Standard, different publishers, different translators or translations, NIV, ESV, different groups do it differently. But in the NASB, they put it in all caps when it's an Old Testament quotation. And if you look down on the page, there's a lot of them here in this chapter of Scripture. And so critical to understanding Romans 9 is understanding the Old Testament quotations that he is going to make. 
So we read here in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Through Isaac your descendants will be named. That's a quotation from the book of Genesis. Now, let's go back, take your Bible and turn to Genesis 12. We're going to look at 12, 15, 17, 18, and 21. So your time in turning there will definitely be worth it. Go to Genesis 12. The quotation that Paul makes here is from Genesis 21. But I want you to understand the flow of the argument and the context in which uh, this quotation is made. When you come to Genesis 12, based on some divine commentary the New Testament gives us, we know that God has already appeared to Abraham. You wouldn't know that simply from reading the Genesis account. Now, you might infer it from the end of 11 where it talks about how he left Ur of Chaldee, but we learn in Acts 7 when Stephen preaches that great sermon that God had already appeared to Abraham and told him to get up and go to the place that he was going to show him. And so when you come to chapter 12 and verse 1, he's not in Ur of Chaldee, he's in a place called Haran. And God comes to him a second time. Notice verse 1, Go forth from your country and your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And then God makes Abram a promise beginning here in verse 2. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. For in you, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families on planet earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. Why? Because through the Jewish people came the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he makes a promise concerning his seed, but he makes a second promise concerning a piece of real estate. We call it the promised land. Look at Genesis 12 and verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants... I will give this land. Now, years later, if you know the Genesis account, after a detour down there in Egypt, you will recall that there's a range war of sorts between the cowboys of Lot and the cowboys of Abraham, and they're forced to separate. And after they do, God appears to Abram, and God makes a promise a second time. Turn over a page to Genesis 13. Genesis 13, and look at verse 15. Here's the third appearance that God makes to Abram. In verse 15, God says, for all the land which you see, he's up on this bluff, he can see this marvelous piece of property. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants and underscore the final word, forever. Now turn over another page to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. God appears a fourth time. And he once again promises a piece of real estate to him. Genesis 15 and verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So you can't re read these verses without realizing that the land is an important part of this deal, this covenant, this promise that God made with the people of Israel. It's a little piece of land, not much bigger than the state of Delaware. But it's on the news every day, and not by accident. There's only 15 approximately million, some put it at 13 or 14 million, but generously 15 million Jews on the planet out of 7 plus billion people. And rarely a week goes by when we don't hear and have to be confronted about this people. Why? Because salvation history comes through the Jewish people. And it comes on this piece of property. It is here that Messiah dies. And it is here that he will literally, physically, actually come again and touch his feet to the Mount of Olives. And so God made a promise to Abram for his descendants 
to enjoy. If you look in verses 19 to 21, you see there's a problem. There's 10 pagan nations who uh, live in this land, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadamite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, and the Mosquitobite. That's not really there. But, um, but in verse 8, Abram, knowing the problem and the challenge, he asked an honest question. He said, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Now this is not a question of unbelief. This is simply a request for some assurance. Oh God, I'd like to know more. Tell me how I can possess it. Give me some of the specifics. And God understands that Abraham is not questioning his integrity. Sometimes we pray like that. We say, God, I want to do your will. I want to be right in the center of it, but give me some affirmation. Give me some assurance. Give me some specifics that I know right now that you're directing my steps. So Abraham says, in effect, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And so God answers him with a visual aid. And what we're going to look at is critically important to how you will approach Romans 9. So pay attention. Verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now in ancient days, there were several ways in which to initiate a contract or a covenant. There are salt covenants. Here is a covenant that you cut. Cutting a covenant where you would take these animals, you would cut them in two, You'd lay some on this side, some on that side, and then the two people making an agreement would walk through them. It was much stronger than a handshake. You, in essence, said, as I walk through these animals, if I do not do what I promise and you can do to me what we've done to these animals, and if you want to see an illustration of that, go home and read Jeremiah chapter 34. So Abraham, he, he cuts the animals in half. He uh, sets them on both sides. And during the day, he's swatting off the vultures that want to come and eat them. The birds of prey, verse 11, came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now, don't miss the picture. All day long, he's swatting off these vultures, and I believe it's a picture of what God just told him is going to happen to Israel, that they are going to be oppressed for 400 years down in Egypt. But notice what happens in verse 17. Here's the critical thing. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. So God puts Abram into a deep, deep sleep, and then he appears to him in this dream. And a smoking oven and a flaming torch are symbols of God used in several places in the Old Testament. And so normally when you cut a covenant, both people are awake, both people walk through the center. But on this occasion, Abram is sound asleep, and in this vision, he sees this a manifestation of God, this theophany, as we would call it, where God walks between the two animal parts. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to keep my promise. And this particular deal that I'm cutting with you, Abraham, is not dependent on you. The Abrahamic covenant, as it is called, did not apply simply to Abram. Rather, it carried through all the generations, making it a national covenant. We're looking at the issue of predestination in a message entitled, Predestined to Hell from Romans chapter 9. This is a very complex topic, and it's easy to get lost in it the first time around. So if you'd like to listen again, simply use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also have a CD or DVD copy mailed to you by calling us at 877-787-7478. The Apostle Paul exhorts us to study to show ourselves approved to God as workmen, not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. And that's our goal at Search the Scriptures, to grow listeners like you in their love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at predestination. Join us then as we search the scriptures.